and welcome to Geeks of Grimdark, your home for everything Warhammer, be they Elves or Eldar, Space Marines or Stormcast, you've got you covered. I'm Lord Commander Orc, and with me as always is... You should, brother, Axel Wright. And I mean, I normally do a smooth jazz voice, but are you doing like a, I'm an action hero voice? What is that? <laughs> no, but that does feel appropriate if you're talking, you know, Warhammer of any flavor. I suppose. I just wanted to point it out. <laughs> Smooth jazz would feel really weird in, well, no, they've changed their marketing strategy quite a bit, so it could fit in. And Age of Sigmar is doing weird stuff, but that's another time, another topic. So we've got an episode to dive into, but first we're going to thank the people that make this whole crazy production possible. They are our patrons, and their names are Pam Galley, Marquis, Chris Chipman, River Galley, Crub, Bree, D, Arthur Crane, Kevin Bay, Brendan Agnew, and John Vinnels. Now, if you'd like to join that illustrious legion, just head on over to patreon.com forward slash Geeks with Shields. For only 25 cents an episode, you get so much extra content, we can't uh, list it all here in this short little blurb. But it's worth it, and even better, you help us produce this podcast on a week-to-week basis. And moving right into our, well, proper topic, I guess. As this is a Geeks of Grimdark, we have a guest, a guest we've had on before. So feel free to introduce yourself. Hey guys, uh, Loremaster Sotek here, back from last time, and then a long time before that. So it's good to be here. The short and sweet version, I guess, is that I am the, uh, as far as I know, uh, one of the leading authorities on Warhammer Fantasy lore, and also a rather extreme delver into the realms of Age of Sigmar and beyond, and a lot of experience with Games Workshop IPs and Warhammer Fantasy and all its different mediums. And the yeah. last time we had Sotek on, he uh, it was meant to talk about one of his preferred armies, the Lizardmen, and then we ended up turning into a a primer on Warhammer Fantasy in general, which was good because we hadn't had that, and I don't know too much about Warhammer Fantasy. And that episode turned out to be like one of our most popular things. So <laughs> that's before, or and we found out after we already invited you back. So it's like, hey. Bonus. <laughs> Way uh, yeah, behind uh, the curtain, everyone's thinking that it was their, you know, flood of comments going, bring him back, that led to him coming back. <laughs> yeah, you got to let the people think that they have a voice. Ah, Obviously, well, they don't, but... <laughs> not my fault. I saw Wizard of Oz at a young age. I'm used to pulling back the curtain. So, well, the anyway. The point of this is don't pull back the curtain. Anyway, so today, uh, the idea... Anyway, is to have a more of a in a focused conversation with Lizardmen, but we'll see where that goes. We don't so, do focused here on this podcast. What are you talking about? Yeah, I don't know. Uh, so, not to go into a recap or anything, because that could be a whole thing. <laughs> go go but, watch the other episode. Go watch the first <laughs> yeah, episode. That's the recap. Go watch the other one. <laughs> yeah. But uh, but loosely establish where we left off. Uh, war, uh, the Warhammer Fantasy world is is basically a petri dish for the old ones, and the Lizardmen were originally created to protect everything. So, yes, that's that's a that's an excellent way to put it. So uh, we'll do the real obvious question. We start with a lot of people, and I think I know the answer. Why Lizardmen? Why Lizardmen? Uh, that's that's a great question. Uh, so for me, at least, I think everyone's journey there is different. But well, maybe not. But in my case, uh, I was very little when I started playing Warhammer Fantasy or started getting involved in the hobby. Uh, I was only I was about nine or ten years old, and my parents had essentially been looking for a hobby for me um, because I grew up in a sports family, but I hated sports. So they were kind of at a loss. 
Um, yeah. So essentially, they were running around this mall in the area I grew up, and there was a games workshop there. And they saw it and thought, that looks like something our son would like, because he's kind of weird and a nerd. So. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so they took me in, and I fell in love with it. And um, thankfully for me, the employee, I, I don't remember who it was, because uh, it was so long ago, but the employee who dealt with me, I guess, uh, was this super nice guy that kind of helped me pick my first army. And... I'll never, he was basically, he basically did the pitch in the best way you can with a kid, where he's just like, okay, what is your, like, your favorite creature, like, your favorite thing? And I was, and at that age, I was like, oh, well, dragons, obviously. And he was like, okay, you like dragons? So here, here are the armies that have dragons. And at the time, the only armies that could take dragons were the elves, uh, which the wood elves were actually being worked on, their sixth edition remake was being done so the wood elves weren't available at the time and so my options were high elves dark elves or the warriors of chaos because you could get galrach and i i looked at it and i was like ah, i don't like i i just wasn't into elves or yeah warriors like i i didn't like humans like if i'm gonna if i'm gonna indulge in a fantasy setting i want to go all in you know um i don't want it to be i don't want to see myself <laughs> on the battlefield <laughs> yeah um, I get oh, enough I totally of on a daily basis. So I, I wasn't interested in that. He's like, well, how do you feel about dinosaurs? And I was like, oh, you know, I love dinosaurs. And he's like, all right, I want to show you this guy. And he's he's basically a T-Rex that rides on the tracks. And he showed me Crocgar. And I was like, that is amazing. <laughs> and, he, uh, and he was like, all right, then this is the army you want to get. So I saw, like, the Lizardman range. And I just fell in love with it. Um, but actually, and, you were, and, you were, and you were, what, like, five? Is that what you said? Uh, about nine. Nine, okay. Uh, but okay. I, yeah, so getting to see a Carnosaur for the first time and, like, all the crazy lizardmen uh, that were available then, I just, I fell in love with them. And, like, yeah. we left the store with a good handful of models uh, and some, like, basic paints and all this other stuff. I still have, I still have most of them. Like, I have, oh, wow. I have from 5th edition, which was, 5th edition was ending, Right as I was getting involved in the hobby, and uh, so I had, like, or maybe sixth edition had just started, but the fifth Lizardman hadn't gotten their fifth edition or sixth edition range yet. It was something like that. But uh, I have, I still have them uh, lurking around in some of my collection areas. But I have like a a fifth edition Croxagore that's horribly painted and is <laughs> mis and is missing a part of his arm, uh, and it's like made out of metal. And then I'm missing, and then I have like ten Saurus with their command structure, and then like a Skink Priest or some goofy combination like that. And boy, they are ugly. <laughs> so bad. Fifth edition Lizardmen. Have anything? When I was nine. That's impressive. Well, plus on one hand, it does give you the ability to like look at where you started and how far you've come. I mean, I was told that's why not to correct. What mistakes I make when I started the hobby, so I could see that. Well, yeah. And oh I, God, I, no! I, I, <laughs> I can't how, count how many times my models have gone in the green stuff to be, you know, repainted. Well, <laughs> like for me, for me, it comes down to like I, I repaint. Like I painted quite a bit of Saurus because I like was, but I, I never really enjoyed the painting aspect of the hobby until like maybe a year or two ago. Uh, like when wow. I came back for Age of Sigmar. I finally had the patience and 
like the willingness to do all the research you kind of have to do if you want to paint well. Mm. You know, it's like there, there's a lot of people out there, and uh, um, this is I don't mean to burst some bubbles here. There's mm. a lot of people out there that'll feed this BS lie where they're just like, oh yeah, just just pick up a paintbrush. Start painting and you'll get better. That's a that's bull. <laughs> if you want to get better, what you got to do is you got to do research. You got to like watch tutorials on how to paint. You got to read about like how people use techniques and you have to see how they're doing it. Like if you're not learning from some kind of other medium, then you're going to plateau and you're going to get really frustrated because that's what happened to me is that like back then I wasn't you know, big, like either YouTube wasn't a thing yet or, you know, it just definitely wasn't what it is now. Where now you can just like Google a model. You can like, if I want to paint a model, I go how to paint model and it'll be there and I can like get some ideas of what I want to do and then develop my own techniques beyond that. Yeah, you know, I'm I'm still brand spanking new in the painting. I literally am working on my first batch right now. I, I am almost done with the first one. I just put uh, the technical base on the coat, like, or sorry, technical coat on the base today. Oh, yeah? So, yeah, yeah, I went with Astro Granite because I like that urban look, but I'm painting a, a, a Orcs army from 40K. So, but the um, the point is that, yeah, I, before I even picked up a brush, I watched a bunch of Duncan's videos. And yeah, me and my... The god, the god, the, the paint god himself. Yeah. <laughs> it's... Duncan. And so me and me and my buddy Wretched, who's my uh, my chaos friend, he plays a thousand suns and corn. Uh, we'll just every now and then we'll just chant at each other: two thin coats, two thin coats. Yeah, thin your paints. <laughs> thin your paints is the most important thing in the universe. Every time um, you don't thin your paints, Duncan cries. So. Yeah, I mean that was that was my biggest problem when I was young is that I didn't thin my paints. So like I'd put something on, and I, I would get frustrated because I didn't understand the. I didn't understand that you're supposed to do multiple coats so that my young brain thought, ah, it's not that I need to put on multiple coats of gold. It's that I need so much gold on my brush <laughs> <laughs> that will show on the first try. Oh, wow. Uh, yeah, I mean, well, that makes sense that a, a kid would think that. It's, it's just painful to hear different. it. There was, there was literally nothing coming to it. And I got to give credit. Namely, in the Age of Sigmar Battle Hunter, which they did this in the 40K codexes, but there's painting guides. Like, hey, here's some helpful tips to kind of, you know, point you in the right direction. Oh, and by the way, we have a YouTube channel with all this stuff also. Oh, yeah, it's, it's so much like, better now. That's a huge thing. Like, 40K hasn't came around to it yet, but it really oh, yeah. is nice in the Age of Sigmar Battle Tomes. You're like, oh, that's how I get that effect. That's yeah. cool. The Age yeah. of Sigmar tomes I have found are quite a bit better about showing like step-by-step -step stages with little details. You know, it's like you pick up a lot of the boxes. You look at the box and you turn around the back of the box and it's like, I use these colors to do this, which is basically the equivalent of telling someone, I use circles and then they draw like a god-tier owl. So they're <laughs> just like, all right, you start with the circle and then draw the rest of the fucking owl. It's like, hold they up. Also, we bought a ton of <laughs> paints, too. It's like, wait a second. There's some paints in between that you didn't mention. Oh, yeah. And, yeah, that's the other thing is they lie. Oh, <laughs> they lie. Like, on those, like, that's why I watch videos almost exclusively for paint guides now. Because mm. so many times, um, like, even on the app, they'll tell you, oh, yeah, I use this color to do this color. And you're like, okay, so that's how he got it to look like it does on the box. And then you would paint, and you're like, this doesn't look right. And then you watch the video, and they use completely different colors. 
And you're like, what the hell? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's why, actually, I, one of the reasons I like that the first army I'm painting is an orc army is I can get away with uh, things not being consistent across them because orcs. So, like, one example is I knew going in I wanted to make every one of my models have a a pink thing on it, like a pink shoulder piece uh, as, like, a motif. And I didn't know what kind, so I literally bought, like, Emperor's Children and Pink Horror and Fulgrim Pink. And I had I had these four models set up where I was like, all right, I'm going to do a different one on each and and now I know which one I like, but I get to do that kind of experimentation to, to see, you know. Yeah, and, uh, and and you know, and that's kind of thing. Like, although I am very interested in painting a Seraphon again soon, I have been I've been too much on a Nighthawk kick lately. Um, and uh, I love painting Nighthawks, but like the first, I'd say the first thirty models or so were really hard. Like trying to get something that I like, but I was. Night haunts are easily one of the coolest looking. Mo- it's funny. And then I discovered Lamy and Medium, and everything made yep. sense. <laughs> ah. Side- sidebar: My buddies just came up to visit last weekend. One of them um, is an Admech player in 40k, but he hates Electro Priests. So he bought a bunch of Night Haunts so he can kit bash them into like weird tech Reaper looking things that he found online. But anyways, the idea was really cool. So kit bashing on true art. Yeah, kit bashing is a lot of. You'll, you'll get there. Everyone gets there eventually just because you're like, I have all these goddamn bits. I need to use them for something. What if I just started combining them? Anyway, so 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 you're about nine years old. You uh, you leave this games workshop with some uh, some lizards uh, ready to be assembled. And this is, you said, at the end of fifth edition. So you said somewhere like metal and whatnot. What was that? I, I just, just had a curiosity. What was that process like for a, a nine year old, like getting into that? What, what, how'd that go? Um, I don't remember a lot. I, I, what I do remember is that I, I did not possess patience as a child. <laughs> like, you know, I, I was the kind of kid that would like play a video game. And I had, when I was younger, I had like a really hard time controlling my emotions. So I, I could get like really angry or really frustrated super easily. Um, and so like, you know, I'd play a game and if I was playing a game and it did something that just like totally screwed me or got my ass kicked, like I would get fucking furious, like, you know, yeah. like, throw the controller across the room kind of shit or like, uh, or like hit my, <laughs> I'll never forget. I still have it somewhere in a closet. Like <laughs> I would like hit the top of my GameCube with one of the controllers and to that machine's credit, it never gave in. Did, was it was it kind of because I know in my case like when I would play uh, like Game Boy games and something didn't go right usually if I was playing like Pokemon or something and I couldn't find something I would quote unquote bite the cartridge to punish it. Yeah, well, I, yeah, I do stupid shit. Like for me, it usually like I'd I'd like throw it. You know, it's that when you're a kid, you're like trying to get that tactical balance between getting the frustration out of your system through violence while also not trying to break the thing you love. <laughs> Don't shatter it. Yeah. <laughs> so like you want to throw it, but you have to throw it at something vaguely soft, but it doesn't give you the same oomph. <laughs> so yeah. like you're trying to. But um. I, yeah. I had a cousin who was a, a hockey player, and I watched him throw the PlayStation controller into the wall after losing at Twisted Metal. It was, Never did uh, that. Never <laughs> that. Well, like uh, I said, he was, a, he was an angry cousin. <laughs> yeah, but, uh, but Warhammer was interesting because it, it forced me to have to develop new skill sets. Building was difficult because, especially back then, the models were 
awful to work with. Yeah, th- those metal ones, I can't yeah, imagine. Yeah, the metal ones were nightmarish because they were just super heavy, and the pieces that you had to put together were completely nonsensical, and the glue... Yeah, so was just glue? <laughs> oh, yeah, like, they were just like, use glue. Now, if you were an adult, you would go, ah, instead of using glue, I'm going to pin my models by drilling little holes in them and, like, using little stuff. When you're a kid, you just do what they tell you to, which they say just use glue, um, which technically could work, but you would be holding a model for a very long time, and God help you if you bump the table wrong. Um, stuff would just fall apart. But, um, you know, I learned, to, I learned to put my models together, and I kind of learned to paint. <laughs> I slathered paint on models. <laughs> um, and then I started to learn to play the game. And I, I never actually got around to playing 5th edition because I'm pretty sure 6th edition had either just started or was about to start. So the first, so when I actually got the money to buy, like, the army books, the first books I bought were the 6th edition books. And um, the 6th edition Lizardmen came out afterwards, which were much prettier than the 5th edition Lizardmen. <laughs> um, and so I started building an army and learning to play. And I had a friend um, who got, who I... Can, like saw it and got interested and he was much like i was like very low middle class upper poor class uh you know white america out in texas he was like upper class and so for him affording armies was much easier but uh mm. he he started collecting high elves and we tried to learn the game playing each other but i mean i don't know if you've ever seen six edition warhammer rules it is <laughs> I've only heard horror stories about it. I've never played old fantasy, but I've heard the horror stories. It it is like it is a brutal like I I actually think it was a great game to teach kids because I think from an educational perspective they learn a ton of stuff and like your reading comprehension skills and your like mathematical skills and all this stuff you're like it's trial by fire but you're gonna learn <laughs> you know. And so we started learning the rules and finally we got, I think when we were in middle school, um, so about three or four, two to three years later, we finally found a local hobby store that was only like 10, 20 minutes away from our homes. So our parents would literally drive us over there either after school or on the weekends and they'd just drop us off and leave us there. You know, they'd, they'd be like, hey, here's 20 bucks for lunch. Don't get in any weird cars. We'll see you in like six hours. <laughs> And we would just stay there and play Warhammer and hang out. And um, that was uh, that was an important time in my life, at least, because, like, you know, especially if you're someone that struggled with anger, anger issues, you have to learn to control them if you're going to be in public and playing, like, a game like that. Because, yeah. like, thank, thankfully... Dice, it can totally betray you with no logic yeah, or fairness. Yeah, you know, you could, you could be pl- playing and, you know, like, you know, I would have my Carnosaur on the field and... Somebody would shoot a bolt thrower and get a, you know, just snipe my character off and kill him in one turn. And, like, when that happens, you just want to literally, like, punch the table. <laughs> like, that's what you feel deep down. Uh, but you can't do that because, like, like I remember, like, once or twice my anger getting to me and I would, like, hit the table or something. They'd be like, whoa, hey, you need to chill. <laughs> and, you know, that embarrassment kind of teaches you to rein it in. Um, yeah, it's also... Usually doesn't happen until you're older. You get that realization of it's a dice game. Sometimes yeah. the dice are just gonna say no. <laughs> yeah, and granted, I I chilled out a lot getting older, especially because I went into music, and music will beat will beat you to death 
if you uh, suffer easily from frustration. But um, uh, but yeah, so I uh, once we were at that hobby store, we actually started to learn the real game because we had adults <laughs> who would fight us on the rules. And when people fight you on the rules, you learn to be you learn to get very good at defining rules as written and arguing with rule lawyers. And boy, that'll get your reading comprehension up real quick. <laughs> you know. Yeah. Um, so uh, learned to play the game, fell in love with it. It was pro- it was like you know my life at that time basically revolved around like a small, very small group of friends, music because that was what I did in school, and then Warhammer. Like that was that was it. That was my life. But um, by the way, I have uh, since you mentioned it, I googled fifth edition Lizardmen. I'm seeing pictures of fifth and fourth edition ones. Hideous. Uh, the the colored ones the ones that have been painted make me think of the old Teenage Mutant Turtles toys I always had I don't know how else to put it and the and the unpainted ones I don't know how you like the level of non-detail there is uh amazing I'm looking at some fourth edition lizard men they look like they were molded out of silver clay (laughs) late late 90s early 2000s games workshop models hideous (laughs) they were so bad (laughs) they finally kind of hit their stride around like 2003 2004 that's when they kind of started to figure some stuff out uh but yeah lizardmen back then were not pretty but yeah that so that was that was mostly my journey uh you know and then i I got older and i grew up with seventh edition i I grew up with sixth edition and then seventh edition came out which seventh edition wasn't really so much a new edition as it was like sixth edition plus you know it kind of like it barely changed the rules. Mm-hmm. And then uh, five or six years after that, 8th edition dropped, and 8th edition was the last edition of Warhammer Fantasy um, and was quite a bit different from 7th. 8th um, edition was much more random, but it was also a lot more forgiving for unskilled players. Because, like, 6th and 7th edition, when I, when I say you had to be skilled at the game, it was stuff like if you wanted to charge, use war machines, shoot, use magic, you had to you had to be able to identify distances with just an, like just by looking at it. Like it was illegal in the game to use any sort of measuring device. What? Um, That's dumb. Yeah. So you would sit there with your cannon, looking at your enemies. I don't know, Stegadon or uh, what's a, or like Greater Demon of Chaos, like a Bloodthirster, and you'd say, "All right, my cannon's gonna aim at your Bloodthirster, and I'm gonna call the shot 22 inches." And your opponent would be like, "All right, good." And you say, "Yep." But then you could pull out the ruler, measure twenty-two inches from the ed- from the front of the cannon towards the bloodthirster, and that's where the shot would hit. And then you'd roll an artillery die to see how far extra you added to like for wind and stuff, and then you'd see where the bounce went. Like that's the level of detail you were working at. If you, you know, I can kind of get that. I like randomness uh, and whatnot, but that seems. I don't know. Something about that definitely rubs me the wrong it way. Like no, it, was, it, was, it was crazy. Like, you wanted a charge was not random. A charge was ex- you, your charge distance was double your movement, but you weren't allowed to measure. So you'd be sitting there looking at your opponent and being like, oh, is he within 12 inches for my croc scores to charge? Or is he at 13 inches? So I'm going to fail the charge. <laughs> like, you had to get really good at eyeballing those distances. It seems uh, for, like such a weird skill to cultivate in your game. Yeah. <laughs> like, I, I get it for immersion's sake, but as a gameplay mechanic... Oh, yeah, it was nuts. And it feels but, like this is going to bog everything down you know, and take away a lot of fun. It, yeah. it, well, it slowed the game down a lot. And it also added kind of a stress level 
because opponents would actively try to che- well not cheat but they were like it was technically cheating you would people would do tactics like they're like okay i need to make this really important charge so when they would be measuring something they would like before the charge phase they would try and use a spell or something that they like knew was out of range just so they could measure to see how far the distance between the target and some other unit was that way they knew how far they had to deal with like stuff like that or like you'd play at a hobby store um because during sixth edition is when hob- uh the, the hobby developed battle tiles so you uh-huh. know how like you go to your local hobby store and they have like six one by one tiles uh one foot by one foot tiles or sorry uh-huh. yeah or uh, not one foot by one foot one foot by something but anyway you make your six foot by four foot grid um, for the game, but because they were tiles, they had a line on the 24 inch marks. So if somebody had a cannon, it was really easy for them to be like, okay, there's 24 inches from my cannon. <laughs> so I'm going to aim like just a little bit more than that uh, to hit the guy standing on the center line. But, it, yeah. it sounds like it's the kind of thing that makes the focus of the players or takes a lot of an undue amount of the player's focus, right? Yeah. When, like, like and, and that was the thing. That was, and there was a lot is the thing like it was a it was a overly it was a bloated game so like this was sixth edition you're saying yeah this was sixth edition so not only were you dealing with having to real real distance measure things in your mind um but you also had like a lot of mathematics you needed to work out like you know everything still had a points cost and it was warhammer fantasy which warhammer fantasy was probably the most complicated system when it came to list building because the way it worked in warhammer which 40k still basically has um but uh fantasy age of sigmar does not have you know fantasy it was like okay i've got two thousand points so i'm gonna buy a character who like a base skink is 50 points or skink chief base 50 points i can give him uh an extra hand weapon for two point or a blowpipe for four point or a great weapon for five points or a halberd for six points and so you'd be like trying to figure out all the mathematics of like oh do i want to buy a mount how many magic items do i want to give him because every character could have magic items up to 100 points. And there were five different categories of magic items that would take up different slots. So you'd be like, okay, I could have a magic weapon, a magic piece of magic armor, a talisman, an enchanted item, and an arcane item on a character if they're a wizard. But I only have 100 points to work with. So where do I want to drop the most points? Do I want to use those full allotment of points? Because if I do, then I can't have as many troops. Like, it's all over the place. So, you know, it's funny, this conversation, right, so far is very much on the actual game-oriented. I think, now I've been thinking about it, I think that's a good thing, since the last episode was all lore. (laughs) So, my my next question then, to continue this line of thought about models, is, okay, so you're telling us that the the game itself is, I'm gonna go with wonky, (laughs) based on your description. Good, but good work. Yeah, but uh, tell us a bit about how uh, say I'm curious what your friends' armies were, but I'm but of course because you're the guest here, I'm most curious. What were the lizardmen like to play, and how has that uh, evolved over time? Ah, okay, so that's a pretty cool question. So um, the big thing um, is that so Warhammer Fantasy's evolution was not super crazy, uh, at least from a lizardman perspective. Like, probably one of the most dynamic changes between editions was that in 6th edition, 6th edition was very famously referred to, well, 6th and 7th, but 6th was worse about it. 6th um, edition was very famously referred to as Hero Hammer because mm-hmm. you would have a lot of people who you would get a 2,000-point army 
and somebody would literally spend a thousand points on a single character. Jesus. Uh, like you would get a you'd get like some characters who were so expensive they were half the army. So A, the only way to win was to kill them pretty much, and B, they were gods on the battlefield. Um like they were they were absurdly difficult to kill, had tons of abilities and magic and items and it was just ridiculous. See, that's that's cool conceptually, but I feel like that lends itself to at the end of the day it's going to be my hero versus your hero and whoever dies first, well basically I'm done then. <laughs> it it could. There there was a lot of shenanigans going around. Um, back then. Seventh edition tried to rectify it by making it a little bit more difficult to get away with having those ridiculous characters. Um, uh, granted, seventh edition kind of was sixth edition plus, but in seventh edition, the interesting evolve we saw is that in seventh edition, cavalry became super important. Um, so, like, the, and granted, the movement system in Warhammer Fantasy is probably its most famous element. Um, and the part that, like, if you ever meet somebody that's like, God, I love Warhammer Fantasy and I just hate Age of Sigmar, or I hate 40k, the biggest reason they probably hate Age of Sigmar or 40k is because of movement. Really? Um, oh. And, yeah, in Fantasy, we had uh, we had a really mm, we had a very in, the movement phase was the most important phase of the game. And the reason was that every unit traveled in block, right? Like, whenever you'd make a unit uh, like monsters and individual characters could run around by themselves and whatever. But most units would have to form up. So you would have like a grid of, and that's why we had square bases. So like you'd have like five Saurus in the front rank and then you'd be four ranks deep. Um, so you'd have 20 Saurus, five by four. And the way movement worked was that everyone, had, of course, had their movement characteristic, which determined how many inches they could move. But what direction you were facing was critical because your line of sight was a 90 degree arc based on the models in the front. So like the guy at the very far left, you would draw a 45 degree angle from his front left corner. And the guy in the very right of the unit, you would draw a 45 degree angle from the front right of his base. And that was what the unit could see. And that was their front arc. Now, if you're in our unit's front arc, that means it can see you, which means it can charge you or shoot you or whatever. Um, and if you charge it, fighting something front rank to front rank was basically just leaving it up to the dice. Uh, you know, like either you hoped your stats were a lot better than theirs or you hoped that you just rolled better than they did to determine who would win combat resolution. And there were other little things, which we'll get into combat res in a second, because that's another pretty interesting thing that is starting to kind of come back, actually, but was crazy and fancy. But the core thing was that, so that was your front arc, but you had a flank and you had a rear. So the flank was determined by the top left corner and the bottom left corner of the unit. Opposite flank, same, the two corner guys. And then your rear was the guy in the very back right and the guy in the very back left, 45 degree angles from their appropriate things. Okay, hold, hold on. Wait, wait, wait a minute. So I'm a little little confused. Uh, all right, so you've got this this unit of, I don't know, like like 10 guys or something like that. Right. They they move as blocks, obviously. But it, so the way that they face is vital to their line of sight. Do What are the rules on each individual uh, model within the unit facing different or same directions? So... Every, everybody in the unit has to face the same way. They're treated as, like, one large entity. Okay. And this one large entity has to be looking the same direction. 
Okay. Um, uh, so the thing was, if you could uh, get to a unit's flank, so you could like, like, say you had a cav, a fast cav unit of like pistoliers from the Empire or uh, dire wolves from the Vampire Counts, if you ran um, so that you were no longer within that ninety degree angle line of sight of the unit, they couldn't see you. So when their turn came around. If they wanted to charge that unit of wolves that got around behind them, they would have to literally reform, which means they couldn't move. They would have to, like, reform the unit so that everybody's now facing this new direction to deal with this new threat. Uh, Because if something's next to you or behind you, not only can it not see you, but if it charges you, it it just screws the unit. Because we had something called combat resolution. Which combat resolution was when two units fight at the... And this kind of still exists now, but it's a much more simplified thing. You know, in Age of Sigmar, for instance, when two units fight, um, you have, at the very, very end of whoever's turn it is, you have the Battleshock phase. Which is like, okay, I killed five units, uh, so my guys have to take a leadership test minus five, and or a bravery check minus five, and if I roll above that number, a couple of guys run away. Pretty mm-hmm. simple. Well, in Warhammer... It was a comparison system because it was basically determining who like was gaining the edge in the battle. So you okay. would say, okay, my 10 Saurus warriors fought your 10 dire wolves. We're both in each other's front arc. And I have 10 Saurus warriors that are five by two. So that two ranks of five guys. Uh-huh. So because they have at least one extra rank of five, they get plus one combat res. Then I killed three wolves, so that's plus three. Then I have a banner carrier, so that's plus one. Then I charge, that's another plus one. What'd you get? And he would say, okay. He's going to do the same kind of math, but for all his various Yeah, so he would do the math for his guys, and then you would compare the different. And let's say the direwolf player would say, okay, I got a score of three. You would say, I got a score of six, so I win by three. So now he has to take a leadership check at minus. And if he loses... His entire unit breaks and runs. So it immediately turns around on the spot to face directly away from the unit it's fighting, and it runs away 2d6 inches. And then I, as the winning player, could either pursue him, or I could try and restrain my troops and tell them to hold the line. Uh, But if I pursued him, I would roll 2d6, and if I rolled equal to or higher than him, his entire unit was destroyed as they get cut down. So does that mean, because the point where you start going to the math was that if one unit is facing away from the other, I'm guessing there's like a big bonus to oh, that yeah. leadership yeah. comparison. So then. If, say if my, if his direwolves were on my source warrior's flank, well, you can't reform in a battle, um, at least for a bit. So what would happen is he would say, okay, not, so because his direwolves are in the flank of my Saurus, only the guys in base to base can fight. So because my Saurus are only two guys deep, that means I get two Saurus against his entire front rank, as long as he's a base-to-base contact. So not only am I grossly outnumbered, but then when we com- we do combat resolution, he would get plus one extra if he was on my flank, or plus two if he was in my rear. And the other problem is, is that if you get charged in the flank or the rear by a substantial enough enemy, uh, your ranks would be disrupted. So you would lose your rank bonus, which means you didn't get any pe- you didn't get any points. For having like a deep enough unit as everyone like gets scattered by this charge so your unit could just get annihilated and it, okay. it was, but like 
you can kind of see how this is like it's dense. Like, well, that's a lot, lot going on. I should say that's a lot of mechanics, and I know uh, that listening to mechanics is very difficult. I myself find that trying to play is usually the best way to learn things. But oh, yeah. still, like I think that gets across. Like what I take away from that is that okay, as you were learning this game, I get the movement thing being extremely important. I also get that uh, you. Um, you call it battle shock. I guess I'm used to calling it a morale phase, similar thing. Yeah, so, so it's it's morale in 40k, battle shock in Age of Sigmar, and leadership in fantasy. Leadership, okay. It's all so, the same thing. Yeah, yeah. All right. So with this leadership, uh, you said that with seventh editions when they made cavalry more yeah, important. Yeah, so cav was important in seventh, and then eighth edition changed a lot of stuff. Eighth edition, in my opinion, was the most balanced edition, but it also had some problems. But okay, like, so actually. All right, so after this uh, this kind of little brush up on on how fan because like yeah that's a lot different than how I you know I, I played, and I didn't but... even bring up the psychology rules. There were stupidity rules, frenzy, <laughs> fear, terror, panic. Like you had to deal with your army's psychology and their mental state. It was nuts. Anyway, okay, so all all this considered, then and uh, let's let's start off focused here in sixth edition, just sixth edition. What made the Lizardmen specifically special in regards to a lot of this, a lot of what we just talked about. Magic. The most important thing about Lizardmen, and this would stay true forever, is that the Lizardmen have the Slon Mage Priests. The Slon Mage Priests are some of the most terrifying wizards in the game. Um, because the big thing about them is you have these big fat toads who are absurdly strong wizards. And the thing is about wizards that was so important was that if you have a wizard, that means you can do something in the magic phase. If you don't have a wizard, that's a whole phase you're wasting, essentially, right? So that's yeah. lost value. But the other thing is that the stronger a wizard is in Warhammer Fantasy, and this is just like in um, uh, Age of Sigmar, at least. 40k, I don't think this describes as well to Psychers. But in uh, Fantasy or AOS, the stronger the wizard, also the better they are at stopping other wizards. So the thing yeah, about as far as I know, that's not that's not really the case in 40k. Deny the witch tests are pretty standard. Anyway, continue. Yeah. So, um, so like a slon mage priest would have just a stupid amount of bonuses. Like from a 40k. So hold on, real quick, before we go into that, because again, like as you mentioned, right, the the quote unquote equivalent in 40k is the psyker phase. And when I think about like, say, with my orc boys, if I'm playing with like a weird boy, the kind of spell i might cast would be something like the jump where i can just teleport a unit somewhere on the the field so what right. what kind of specific stuff are your slan mages doing well the scary thing about a slan is they could do a lot of things because in fantasy uh, you know just like in 40k you have like psychic abilities that are unique to each race right they have like a lore of psychic powers they can choose from mm -hmm. fantasy was the exact same what made Slon scary is that instead of choosing from one list of, like, six psychic abilities, they could choose from eight lists with six <laughs> psychic abilities. And yeah. you wouldn't know which list they were picking from until you showed up to play them. Mm, and which, on, made, which, of course, makes it very difficult to Yeah, you know, and counter. to further elaborate what a Slon could do that made them terrifying, I will give you an example translated in the psychic test. So imagine you have a weird boy. And he goes to cast a... And you're, uh, let's say you're fighting this weird boy, right? So you're the one having to deal with stopping him. He goes okay. to cast a spell, and he tells you what the spell is going to do 
is he's going to basically be able to... Um, he's basically going to... Uh, God, what's a good spell that I remember off the top of my head? Uh, he's going to make his entire unit of guys that are normally strength 4 now be strength 10 for the for uh, close combat, and their AP is going to be basically like minus 7. Okay, so and, super strength, or super combat boost. Like, like yeah. insanely powerful, right? And you're okay. like, okay, but you need like, you need a pretty high roll to get that spell, because that's a powerful spell. Yeah, I and, imagine. And he says, ah oh, yes, but I'm a slon. So, or super weird boy in this case. So, <laughs> instead of just rolling like two dice to determine if he gets off this spell, he would roll uh, he would roll five, he would roll five dice and in addition to that, he would also get to add an extra free dice and he gets plus five to whatever his result is. And Ooh, okay. he's going to be able to do that, like, I don't know, three or four more times before the end of that psychic phase. And it, even if you stop this spell, which, by the way, you get three dice to stop his five dust plus five plus one. I thought I thought playing against my my thousand sons friend was was bad, <laughs> but that sounds like some nonsense right there. Okay, psychic psychic stuff is like is like it's child's play compared to magic. In fa- like magic and fantasy was oh, grotesque a lot of the time. Okay, well then real real quick sidebar then. Uh, so you walked out of that that shop with you know some some dinosaurs of some sort. When did you get your first salon mage model? Uh, I think I started to play competitively. When I probably was around 13 years old. So maybe like three years later. Um, because that's when I finally got old enough that not only could I like afford to get new models at Christmas and my birthday and stuff, but I could actually comprehend the rules enough and began to have enough experience with the game to be able to formulate how to build a list in my mind. You know, uh, I was going to actually ask that earlier. I just forgot about it entirely. But I, you know, when I was in uh, uh, early middle school, I got into card games. And I remember much later realizing that I didn't know what I was doing for the first several years of, of playing that. So it's that kind of like idea of, of actually getting the rules like down. So you're saying it's about a, about a four year period to. Uh, to yeah, I would say I would say it at least took me about three to four years to get OK at the game. And I was never great at sixth edition. Seventh edition is where I hit my stride, but that was also when I was like a full-on teenager, you know, like fifteen to seventeen year old, years old, mm-hmm. um, and probably more like fifteen to sixteen years old. I mean, that's when I started to play competitive um, for real, and I would like go to tournaments and grand tournaments, and I was playing like in the te- Texas Master Circuit. Um, looks like, uh, by the way, it looks like these Slon Mage models really like their throne things <laughs> that the, they sit the, in. The floating the palanquins? Yeah. Yep. Yeah. I, I think it's technically pronounced palanquin, but I think that sounds dumb, so I call them palanquins. Yeah, hey, I'm not judging. But, uh, yes. Which, a slon is... Slon are amazing. I, I love them. A lot of people who had to deal with them hated them, but I, like, I love their lore a bunch. So... They were very satisfying models to use. So then among, among the, uh... From your description, anyway. So then among the armies, right? Like, normally when I think of fantasy, I think of, uh, you know, the, the big boy mages as, like, the elves or something like that. But you're, like, were the ah! slon, were the slon, ah! like, the big boy mages oh, yeah. across all armies? The, 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 the real big boys? Like, elves, elves could compete with the big boys. But the actual big boys, when it came to magic, were the lizardmen with the slon mage priests, the greater demons of Zinch, 
uh, with Demons of Chaos. Um, you could sometimes see like a really powerful Mortals of Chaos, like a Chaos Sorcerer Lord, but that was a lot more rare. Um, and then the last big one was a really dedicated vampire count. You get really scary at magic. Um, especially back in 6th and 7th edition. One thing that changed significantly from 6th to 7th that was a huge deal was that in 6th and 7th edition, your magic pool, so like instead of instead of like 40k now, where you're like, okay, I want to cast a psychic spell my guy can manifest this many spells. So that's how many spells I get to cast, period, in the story, right? Yeah. Instead, you would show up to the table and you would say, okay, I get... So when my magic phase starts, I have a power... I have a pool of power dice. Just for showing up, I get two dice in that power pool. Then for every wizard on the on <laughs> my side of the table, so my, my wizards, I get a number of dice equal to their wizard level. So I've got a level one skink priest. That's a die. I've got a level two skink priest. That's two more dice. I've got a level four slon. That's four more dice. And then you, would, if you had any further like magic items or abilities, you would add in those dice. So you'd be like, okay, I've got a pool of 12 power dice. And your opponent would do the same thing for dispel dice. So he would say, okay, for showing up, I get two dispel dice. For having four wizards that are levels one or two, I get one dice for each of those. And then for having one level four wizard, I get two more dispel dice plus any items or whatever. And generally, dispel dice are harder to get than power dice. So you would say, this okay, is very reminiscent <laughs> of seventh edition Warhammer 40k. Okay, yeah. So 40k probably had a similar. 40k system. had the same, almost exact same system. Yeah, and it was it was toxic as fuck. Yeah, <laughs> there were some like most armies were reasonable. You know, you'd show up and like your high elf opponent or your. Uh, Empire opponent would be like, okay, I've got 10 power dice. And you'd be like, okay, I've got six to spell dice. So he's more than likely going to get off a spell or two, but he's going to have to work for it. And there was a really cool strategy of your opponent being like, oh, okay, maybe I'll use one dice to try and get off this cheap spell, but it's going to be really hard to get it off. But if I get it off, is he going to go for trying to dispel that so I can go for a bigger spell? You know, there's a lot of mind shit there. But some that armies was, could yeah, just... That was the psychic phase yeah, in uh, some armies could just fuck you in fantasy though like yep. lizardmen and vampire counts and demons would show up to the table and be like i have 20 power dice <laughs> <laughs> thousand suns yeah i have 20 that, that power was their dice gimmick. and my spells are god tier and good luck trying to stop me um yeah like, and you were just boat like vampire counts were probably the most toxic so, so hold on so who were like what were your friends playing against you out of curiosity uh, well my my only actual friend who played the hobby at the time well, i i got other friends into it as the years rolled on but um i had i had a really good friend who played high elf but to be frank he really sucked at the game <laughs> <laughs> well i mean the fact that i mentioned elves earlier and you started laughing about <laughs> magic i think is indicative of something <laughs> there so like the hiles the hiles were a bad art there's just no other way of getting around it they were an army where their their models were very elite, but they were very expensive. But the problem was they had like they had really good skills. They were really fast. They had a very very high chance to have successful like hits and stuff in combat. But they were squishy. Like all elves are toughness three. All elves. Um, mm. So like you would have the most badass elf on the table, 
who'd be like, yeah, I'm a, I'm like a sword master of Hoeth. I can attack multiple times and just screw your day, blah, 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 blah. But he's toughness three and he only has heavy armor, which means he only gets a five up save. And he costs like Ooh. 30 points a model. So he'd oh, be like, I, they'd be like, yeah, sword masters. And I'd be like, yeah, skinks with blowpipes, kill those sword masters. <laughs> they go, boop, boop, dead. <laughs> like, like, that doesn't seem well balanced at all. Yeah, so Hiles were trash. Um, Hiles eventually got good. In 7th edition, Hiles were actually overpowered for a bit because Games Workshop finally was like, okay, we've got to do something for the elves. So they gave their entire faction always strike first, which made them really difficult to deal with in combat. And they gave them like a fuckload of dragons who were much, much scarier than dragons had ever been before. Um, and so Hyos were like, yeah, we're awesome. And then the rest of 7th edition happened and they stopped being awesome. Okay, but... okay. So, so you're about, you're like 14, you're 13 or 14. You're starting to, you, you've got the rules down. You're starting to maybe play a little competitively. You got your, your slon mages so you can cast crazy, like, magic. Uh, how, do you, how do you supplement these uh, slon mages? Like, what other kind of things in, in the Lizardmen army are, are worth of note? So, I know, for instance, in uh, I know in the Total War games, they get a crazy, like, big T-Rex that can rampage, only just because my friend Nils showed me that in a video once. Oh, oh the, Dread, the Dread Saurian? Yeah. Yeah, the Dread Saurian <laughs> would not come out for many years after that. But okay. uh, Dread Saurian was a 8th edition exclusive model that was goofy as shit. Like, <laughs> r running into someone with a Dread Saurian, if someone shows up and they put a Dread Saurian on the table, you look at them and go, you're either deeply in debt or have a lot of disposable income. <laughs> like, so there's no other way around it. <laughs> like, it's it's one or the other. But, so what So what happened, uh, so the, the way you design a Lizardman army, um, essentially, is at the core of it, you have your Slum Mage Priest, if you're playing to win. And Slon were like stupid god-tier wizards that were just super obnoxious and could be like huge pains in the ass and had a lot of spells to choose from. But um, the thing about a Slon was that they were a point sink. So remember how I told you the game was Hero Hammer? The yeah. Slon was the Hero Hammer contestant a lot of the time. <laughs> okay. um, because it's such You've a power. like hundreds of points into this thing. <laughs> yeah, like, a, like I'm literally on a program that I still have that allows me to like build an army uh like like right now and a slon would cost somewhere in the ballpark like if you made a good slon you're looking at a minimum you're looking around like 600 points uh to get a slon on the table but here's the problem with a slon is we have something called temple guard temple temple so you remember how i told you units travel in grids yeah well the cool thing about units traveling in grids and this is something that they don't do in modern fantasy or 40k uh, or mo modern Age of Sigmar 40k, but it's something I kind of hope they bring back because it made characters a little bit more dynamic and have more options, uh -huh. is that back then, characters were very squishy on average. Like, a lot of characters, like heroes, like even the battle heroes, but especially wizards, a stiff breeze could kill. But they could hide inside unit. So you would put them in the front rank of a unit, and they were functionally, you couldn't single them out unless you, like, had the sniper keyword on a shooting unit or you got really lucky with a piece of artillery or you like just charged into combat and killed him there. Okay. Um, so like, or you like, you would either have to have some kind of way to single them out or you could literally just like charge in there and try and beat the shit out of them. Because once something was in base to base contact with them, you could swing at them. 
So a lot of strategy in the game when it came to wizards was trying to kill wizards by either sniping them or by um, like running something fast into the battle that could like get up on them and kill them before it was inevitably killed. Mm. Um, so like you would be like, okay, sure, they've got an, an uh, imperial. Okay, so so sorry, ahead. just just a. So it sounds like yeah, what up? you're saying is that I have I, I bring this slon mage to do most of my killing of their army. And then I got to bring like a crew of assassins whose sole job really is to try to track down the enemy mages and murder them before they try to do the same. You could do that. That wasn't necessary with a slon. Like a slon was so powerful, the slon was sniping out enemy wizards. Ah, okay. <laughs> uh, because the slon would have like the slon would have a spell called. Um, I've actually got it up now, so I can see it. But like uh, a good example of. A spell is oh my gosh! It's been so long since I've looked at these, <laughs> but um, well, that's I... why I was curious, like how you because it sounds like that yes, the Salon Mage is obviously the the powerhouse. It's also uh, you know all this huge points thing. So as I was curious how you how you supplement it, or do you just take like three Salon Mage? Like there's my army. So <laughs> well, sometimes people would take two, but that was super rare. That was very obnoxious. Like it could work, but it was difficult. But like, so you'd have this long. Just how scary they were if you could yeah. have done two and call it an army. Well, just just like yeah, just just try and make it across the board. Now yeah, I will say, you try. There, there was an inherent danger in using something like Slon. Unlike wizards, were not a surefire way to win, because wizards could miscast, which you know it's like uh, shadows in the warp or uh, perils, you know, perils, uh, perils. You know, like oh, I rolled a double six, but in fantasy, when you roll the double six. It, you were not like, oh, okay, I take D3 mortal wounds. No, you would roll on a chart. And the chart could do a lot of stuff. If you were super unlucky, the wizard explodes. And oh, yeah, I'm told, I, I've been told that uh, uh, 40K, like 7th edition was like that too because my chaos buddy actually was disappointed that, that you can't just now accidentally summon a bloodthirster to the, the field anymore. So. Yeah, like you, that if you was fucking you terrifying unlucky, when that happened. You, you would miscast and you'd be like, oh shit, I miscast on my second spell. I still have like 15 power dice left. What's my miscast result? And your result would say... All of your power dice vanish and the magic phase immediately ends. And you just be like, fuck. Because you just spent, <laughs> you know, that's that's a quarter of your army's potential just gone. You're like, out of the six magic phases you get for the entire game, you just wasted one. Um, so, and, and that so was, putting all, know, So putting all your eggs in the, the wizard basket is a bit was, of a game for that. It was dangerous, yeah. Now, granted, you know, things like Slawn could mitigate that. Because, you know, a Slawn might have an I like... Uh, so with keeping in mind how dangerous that sounds, and there was even a result like where like a demon would literally just like reach out and grab your wizard and rip, bring them back into the realm of chaos. <laughs> so your wizard would just instantly die. Um, like regardless of whatever protection he had, he just died. Um, but the slon, uh, this is my favorite item ever invented and it was cheesy as fuck, but Lizardman players loved it. We had an item called the cupped hands of the old ones in seventh edition. And what the cup hands of the old ones did was a Lizardman player would purposely be throwing six dice at every spell with the Slon, trying to miscast. Because if he miscast, which had a miscast had a very, very high chance of dealing significant damage to a wizard or just outright killing them. Like, it was a non-insignificant chance, right? Mm -hmm, yeah. um, 
so the slon would miscast, and your opponent would be like, ha ha, you miscast, your slon's gonna die. And you'd go, ah ah, I have the cupped hands of the old ones. So now I roll a two, uh, now I roll a single d6. If I get a two or higher, I get to th- to pass my miscast onto one of your wizards. Oh, jeez. I call bullshit. So That's you'd be nuts. like, oops, I miscast, which if you miscast, that means you get off the spell irresistibly. So you get off like the most powerful spell you have because you're throwing the most dice at it. So you'd be like, okay, I resolve this super powerful spell. And now your wizard miscasts, and then he blows up and he dies. <laughs> That's dirty. That like, is dirty. That's not, yeah. I agree with I agree with Ulrich on this. That sounds yeah. dirty as hell. <laughs> yeah, oh yeah, it was it was amazing. But like a lot of armies had super cheesy shit like that in seventh edition. It was it was a madhouse. Well, that leaves uh, that leaves us the the next the next two things right were because uh, you said before that eighth edition was kind of like a whole different bag. <laughs> And then obviously, and then obviously we have Age of Sigmar. So how did so? Let's first of all let's go with uh, what changed about the Lizardmen in Eighth. Not a lot actually. Um, like the the core system changed. Like we were now we were allowed to measure stuff before we declared it. Um, <laughs> but but they added in a lot more randomization. Um, you know, so you'd be like, oh, I can measure to see if I can make this charge. But instead of it just being double my movement, it's my movement time plus two d six. Or my movement plus 2d6 plus whatever. Or my movement plus 3d6 minus the lowest. You know, shit like that. Yeah. Um, but what really happened in 7th or 8th edition, that was the there were two really big things that happened in 8th. The first was that magic was completely reworked. And so magic... That's a big be- deal for Lizardmen, based yeah. on what you've been saying. So. Yeah, magic became significantly more deadly. Like the sp- you, Like, we got spells that could just instantly kill a unit the amount of magic you could have was much more limited because how you determine magic now, and it was, it was much more gamble to go. So that, sounds, that sounds, and I'm just trying to think about the, um, the game design, like thought behind that. That sounds, it's like, I want to make the wizard or the, the, the ma- the magic user in an army, a more valuable, but more like they do just a couple big impact things. Uh, yeah. Well, like now you could get away with like most armies um, that like if you were like, I don't care what the consequences are. I'm going to try and win. You would bring a really powerful wizard to hope you got good wins of magic, because instead of just getting a power pool based on everything, what happened instead was you would show up with your wizard. And no matter how many wizards you had or anything, um, at start of the wind of magic, start of the magic phase, whoever's turn it was would roll 2d6. That's how many power dice you get. So he would roll 2d6, and those two dice combined was how many power dice he got, and whichever dice was highest was how many dispel dice your opponent got. So, uh. like, if I rolled a 5 and a 6, I get 11 power dice, he's get, he gets 6 dispel dice. Okay. Which, that's, like, that's like, oh, okay. But, like, if I roll two ones. I get only two power dice and he gets one dispel dice, um, which like the odds of getting anything done with that are itty bitty. And there mm-hmm. were ways, there were ways to mitigate that. Like every wizard could do something called channeling, but channeling was not a very high chance, which channeling was like for every wizard you have on the field, uh, whether you're dispelling or casting, you roll a D six for all of them. And for every roll of a six, you get an extra dice in your pool. So okay. very, very low odds. Still uh, something, but yeah. Sounds like the whole thing was meant to equalize and deal with that, what you were talking about before, with the I have 20 power decks yeah, issue. It, 
But, you know, funny enough, um, the thing with 8th edition is it actually made Lizardmen go from being one of the best casters to the best casters. Because they were the most reliable. <laughs> and the reason was, once again, the slot. The slot got nerfed pretty significantly, but they also got, like, a shitload cheaper. And the thing with the slot... And so let me run you through just, like, the average Lizardmen army. And I'll kind of explain all the different components. Because um, we've been kind of, like, circling that point. Uh, so at the core of most armies, you ever saw Mage Priest. Slaw Mage Priest is all your eggs in one basket, but he's incredibly durable and almost impossible to kill. And the reason is that he's actually very squishy. He has very he has relatively low toughness for how expensive he is, decent amount of wounds, um, but he can't defend himself in close combat. If somebody gets on him in close combat, he's dead, essentially. But he could literally be your entire leadership structure in one character. Not oh. only not only was he your wizard. But he could be your general because he's the highest leadership character in the army, which most armies, the wizards are not their highest leadership characters. Their combat characters would be the highest leadership guy. Um, and then you, you, but you could take a wizard, but you would sacrifice some stats, but not with the lizardman. The lizardman, the slon is like the best general. So he has the highest leadership. And he had a unique rule where he could also be your battle standard bearer. So in most armies, you would have a general and a battle standard bearer, and they were never allowed to be the same thing. Uh, because the battle standard bearer is basically the guy that carries like a super fancy magic banner that's like, hold the line, and everyone mm -hmm. like of course. refuses <laughs> to give in, right? Basically, because a battle standard bearer would let you reroll all failed leadership checks, which is huge. Yeah. Like you could never leave home without one. But with a slon, you could put both of them on one character, which saved you a ton of points. And mm. for most armies, if you have a battle standard bearer, he can either have magical equipment or he can have a magic banner, but not both. One or the other. Slon can have both. So there's a lot of consolidation of basically stuff most armies would consider required and you can put it all on one model. Right. And then, so that's the Slon. Like, a lot of eggs in one basket. But, of course, that means you have to protect him with everything you've got. So that's where the Temple Guard come in. The Temple Guard are a bodyguard unit. And like I told you where the, like, oh, yeah, sure. Like, if a wizard's in a unit, you could still get to him. Either by sniping him, hitting him with a piece of artillery and getting lucky, or, like, just charging the unit with something you don't really care about, but it can do enough damage to kill a wizard. You know, mm -hmm. like, there's a whole classification of units in Warhammer Fantasy um, where their job is that they're super fast, but they're really cheap. And they can run up to something like a War Machine crew or a wizard and just kill them. Now, they're probably going to die in the process, but that's still worth the point exchange. Mm -hmm. yeah, the problem with a powerful the, unit off the table. Yeah. Problem with the Slon, however, is he has another unique rule called the Palanquin, which is that floating throne he's on. Which the big thing about a Palanquin is that it basically is like, A, it provides him with a bubble. And this bubble just gives him like a flat four up ward save for free. So that Jesus. means that means that no matter what hits him, unless it specifically states otherwise, which there were like maybe three or four things in the game that could do this. But if anything hits him on a four up, he ignores it. Um, but the temple guard, because they're the ultimate bodyguards, they don't allow the slon in the front rank. They put the slon in the second rank. You can only attack something if it's in base to base with you. Mm -hmm. So you gotta so kill the temple means, guard to get at the slon. So to get to the slon, you had to kill every single temple guard, at least down to the last two. 
And most Temple Guard units would have about 26 guys in them. And these guys are beefy. Like, they have a ton of armor. They're, they hit, like, trucks. And the Slon just buffs the shit out of them the entire time. Like, most Slons would run life magic. So they'd be sitting there going, okay, my Temple Guard now have a 5-up uh, ward save because they're regenerating any damage they take. Also, if any Temple Guard die, I cast this other spell where I get D6 plus one models back every time I cast it. Also, yeah. I cast this spell that doubles their toughness. Also, I cast this spell that does other, this other stupid bullshit. Like, it's so, like, the, so the Slon is in this, this bunker. And All right, so, oh, hold on, real quick, just as a, as a sidebar, and you don't, don't need to go into too much detail on this, but with how crazy this sounds, what was your bane then? Was there, like, any army specifically that was difficult for you to deal with? Oh, yeah. Um, demons of Chaos were always a fucking nightmare. Warriors of... Which, demons... We'll, we'll get into demons in a second. They're actually... They, demons are probably one of the most important armies in the history of fantasy because they led to the reason it died as a setting. Ooh. Um, uh, which we'll get That's into that in a whole second. separate episode. Yeah, that yeah, might be... I was be about to say, we're, we're kind of closing in on time so maybe we'll have a that that's our our uh, reason to bring you back again <laughs> we'll tease that for season two the, the demon the demons single-handedly killed off fantasy because they broke the game um okay okay don't say anymore because that is yeah, definitely yeah. an episode so for season so two. so you have your but yeah warriors of chaos demons of chaos were super annoying to play high elves could be pretty rough to, if they took like a really cheesy build that was pretty much it. Dwar ah, dwarves, dwarves were probably one of the... Dwarves and ogres were... Really well, I'd imagine, because dwarves generally, even in the lore, right, you said that dwarves' whole thing is that they're anti-magic. They're resistant ah, to magic. They're, they they're not that good at anti-magic in tabletop. Like, ah, right. They have it, but they're not great at it. Um, like, it, the, the problem with anti-magic in 8th edition was that magic resistance basically just meant if a spell hit you you would improve your ward save by whatever your magic resistance number was. So if you had magic resistance two, you would get plus two to your ward save, which sounds good in theory. The problem is that only works if the spell hurts you. And most, so like, it sounds like most of the spells you're describing are buff spells anyway. <laughs> yeah, so like if your opponent is doing nothing but buffing himself, debuffing you, or using spells that don't allow saves, well, then your magic resistance doesn't do jack shit. Okay. Um... But the thing about dwarves was that their characters were the scariest characters in the game because of runic items, but that's a whole other thing. But anyway, so all the right, average right. army, I'm going to blitz through this. Slum makes Priest at the center. He has a big old block of Temple Guard bodyguarding him. Temple Guard are bullshit. They're very expensive, but they were very, very powerful. They had the highest leadership characteristic in the game if you built them the right way. Um, so they were, they were functionally unbreakable, so you couldn't break them. Uh, because they were stubborn, which means their leadership could never be modified. Ah. Uh, so they were leadership 10. Um, and lizardmen are cold-blooded, which means whenever you would roll a leadership check, you'd roll three dice and remove the highest dice. You know what the odds are to get an 11 or a 12 rolling three dice and taking out the highest? Really tiny. <laughs> <laughs> and because the Slon Mage Priest is your battle standard bearer, you could re-roll if you failed. So, yeah, they, they rocked those, uh, those battle shock tests then. <laughs> right, yeah. So they would never break, basically, unless you really fucked up. But they would almost never break. Um, they were immune to psychology. They were stubborn. You would take a banner that made them leadership 10, essentially. Um, and they, they had a really special rule where most characters in the game could be sniped out either in close combat or by artillery and stuff. Because if something could snipe out a character, 
there was a rule we had called look out sir and look out <laughs> look out sir was basically like a, a regular guy would like push that guy out of the way um yeah, stay down it, mr president yeah it would take the hit for them but it only worked on a two up so it was kind of sketchy sometimes well a slon is too important for that so temple guard would auto pass that check they didn't even roll they were just like nope <laughs> um mm. Then you had the real fuck yous in the army. Because that was just, that's the anvil, right? That's that's the big tanky thing that's buffing the army. It's holding a lot of points as point denial. Because in, in fantasy, you only got points if you killed um, what you're trying to fight. So if the Saurus are still standing by the end of the game, you don't get any points for that unit unless they're all dead. Mm-hmm. Um, okay. So And that unit with the Slon would cost somewhere in the ballpark of 1,000 to 1,500 points, depending on how big the Temple Guard were. All right, so that's uh, like that's like most a vast majority of your army point wise yeah. is, this. and then the rest of the army would just be skirmish bullshit, like skinks with blow darts. Yeah, so skinks <laughs> skinks with javelins, skinks with blowpipes, salamanders, which were a nightmare unit, because salamanders salamanders are probably one of the most famous units in Warhammer Fantasy history because they were introduced in the first edition Lizardmen, um, but in uh, eighth edition they hit their stride at being evil <laughs> because what mm-hmm. they would do is i don't know if y'all have ever seen a flame template from old 40k yep i, um, I know i was familiar with those right so you know we had a lot of template weapons um back then and you know there were flame template three inch template five inch template were the things for fancy that represented like uh, a piece of artillery hitting the ground or like a big spell blowing up or whatever mm-hmm. but the salamander could shoot a flame template out of its mouth um and the thing was with templates. You can't spread out like you can in 40k because yeah, you can't spread out. Everyone oh. has to be in rank file, and most models are 20 millimeters by 20 millimeters. You know how many models you can cover by an eight-inch template? Templates <laughs> must have been. Oh, I hadn't thought about that because that was like the biggest bitch in 40k. Is everyone would space their models yeah, two inches in, apart. And in I edition, oh yeah, yeah. In eighth edition, they introduced the insane rule that if you had a partial on a template. So, like, you're holding the template over the unit to see who all is covered by it because they all get hit by the salamander fire attack. You know, most of the units aren't, most of the models aren't fully covered. Only a piece of the base is being covered. Well, in 7th edition, that used to be, oh, they're only, there's like 26 guys that are partially covered. So they'd only get hit on a four up. 8th edition tried to make the game faster. So partials just counted as hit. (laughs) So I I would hit a unit of like, I don't know, and and the thing was, Eighth Edition introduced a new rule called hordes, and hordes were the name of the game. Which a horde was if a unit had like just a fuckload of guys, it could fight in a whole extra rank. Um, so you would get three ranks of guys fighting instead of just two ranks of guys, as long as the oh, unit was like ten wide. So units were like really really wide, so they could get a shitload of attack, or they would go really really deep. Because if you had more ranks than your opponent, you had a rule called Steadfast, which I hated and it was bullshit because Skaven abused the fuck out of it. But <laughs> Steadfast meant as long as you had more ranks than your opponent, your leadership could not be modified. So, like, oh, you, you could kill a billion guys in that unit, but as long as they still had more ranks than you, their leadership would stay the same for their leadership check. So fantasy was insane. It was. But a salamander was just juicy because of this. Because the the trick was steadfast only worked for combat check. So what you would do to people is the salamander would run up next to that unit of like chaos warriors or skaven slaves or whatever, 
And you could have multiple salamanders in a unit or just multiple salamanders next to each other. So you'd have three salamanders who would all fire a volley. And the yeah. thing about that eight-inch template is it's very easy to aim because the only thing you would add to it is you would measure from the front of the salamander's base and then you'd roll what's called a... Um, uh, you'd roll an artillery dice. And basically you would uh, move the template and the artillery die go, it has six sides and it goes two, four, six, eight, ten misfire. Um, so whatever number you rolled is how far you would move the template up. So the oh. salamanders would walk up and they were skirmishers, which the thing about skirmishers meant that they did not have to be in grid formation. Skirmishers could spread out, you know, with that like only having to be within an inch of each other. And... So the salamanders, the thing about skirmishers is because they weren't in a brick formation, they had free movement. So that you could just move them wherever you wanted to within their movement distance, and they could pivot for free. So they could change what direction they were looking. A Sidebar. Big, yeah. I, I, I really like the energy in your, like, the last, like, six minutes as you're describing how you just destroy these people with, like, I can just hear the excitement in your oh, voice. Dude, I, very... I love it. it I, it's just, it brings back so many giggles for me. <laughs> you would you would just walk up these salamanders next to these like 500 to a thousand point units and the so like i told y'all earlier movement systems in warhammer were very complicated with line of sight so if you walked up next to a unit uh, out of their line of sight that means they couldn't see you when their turn came around so if they wanted to threaten the salamanders they would have to pivot and if they pivot every whenever you would move a unit in warhammer fantasy to like move a unit, you couldn't just pick it up and be like, they're facing this way now. No, that cost you movement. So you could either wheel the unit where you would have to measure from the outside edge and literally measure inch by inch to see how far they could wheel, or you would have to reform the unit, which means they don't get to move, but they get to face a new direction. So I would walk up next to these big fat hordes. Meanwhile, my temple guard are bearing down on them. And the salamanders would walk up next to them, and each one of them would fire a template. And I'd get, like, 27 hits with the first one, 30 hits with the second one, 27 hits with the uh, third one again. Every hit is a strength four auto hit that's, like, armor piercing. Or it wasn't armor piercing back then, but it was, like, strength four, and um, which was pretty good. Like, most units were toughness three, toughness four. So I'm wounding them on three ups or four ups. But here's the juicy part. is not only would it kill like a shitload of guys really, really easily, um, because in fantasy, we didn't have AP. Like, there was a special rule called armor piercing, but it was very rare. AP was determined by your strength. So, like, if you were strength four, that means you automatically reduced armor by one because the hit was, like, so strong. Strength five reduced armor by two. Strength six reduced it by three. Strength seven reduced it by four. So on and so forth. Mm -hmm. So these salamanders are hitting automatically without having to roll, basically, a bunch of guys at strength four, uh, so they don't have to roll to hit. It auto-hits. They wound on threes or fours. It reduces their armor by one. And if they take one wound, just one, because it's a flaming attack fired by a quote-unquote flame cannon, it automatically caused a panic check, which means they would roll 2d6, and if they rolled higher than their leadership, the unit would break and immediately run away. And then you would just, like, run it down with something else. And... And salamanders were only 80 points. <laughs> like, they're cool. super cheap. Pretty cool-looking model, too. Oh, yeah, so. they're great. And those little skinks around them, the skink handlers, the skink handlers did not count for the sake of rules unless the salamander was hit by an attack. If the salamander was wounded, like, you could fire a cannon 
and a salamander. A cannon is strength 10, basically ignores armor, and does d6 wounds if it wounds you. Devastating weapon. You fire a cannon at a salamander, it hits the salamander, and I go, oh, okay, I get to roll my monster handler save. If I roll a 5 or a 6, you miss the salamander. You hit a single skink. That's it. <laughs> That's all you get. <laughs> oh. And it was just... All right. All right. All right. I'm having, having way too much fun here. <laughs> so uh, my last question, I don't know if Ulrich has more, but uh, it is same principle, but Age of Sigmar. How are, how are lizard men different or the same? Oh, no. Age? We, we got to save Age of Sigmar for a separate topic, a separate episode. Uh, all right, I, I'm actually. Age of Sigmar okay. is too fundamentally different. I think. Yeah, I, I, I would, I would set that different. I will say this. Um, I will say this of that eighth edition fantasy is the one I would still encourage people to learn because it was fun. Like eighth edition had a lot of rules, but I actually do not think it has more rules than Age of Sigmar or 40k have now. It's just that. I think what's unique about 40K and AOS and kind of like the big lie that's going on right now is a lot of people look at 40K and AOS and they say, oh, these are good because they're simple, but they're really not. It's that instead of the core rules being complicated, the unit rules are complicated. Um, at least in Age of Sigmar. Like in Age of no, Sigmar, I, yeah. I can core, buy that. Which, you know, and that was like one of the selling points. And like, there's a lot of people nowadays you'll meet who say, oh, fantasy died because the rules were too complicated. But here's the thing. If I want to play Age of Sigmar now to play competitive, I need to buy the rule book, which no longer has only four pages of rules like it did in first, edi first edition. Now it has like, you know, 10 to 20 pages of rules. And that gives me the basic rules. But now every single unit has its own rules. Just like if you play 40K, you can't just learn the core rules. You got to learn your army's rules. And every army has unique melee weapons, has unique range weapons, and you got to go to the back of the book and figure out what the fuck those things do. And, like, you have to look so many different places for all these rules. Like, they're scattered all over the place. In fantasy, that was not the case. In fantasy, 95% of the rules, core rulebook, you're done. You know, you would have, like, a special rule section in 8th edition that had all 50 special rules, but that was it. You know, at most you would open up your unique army book and you'd be like, okay, my Lizardmen have two army-wide unique rules and maybe one out of every four units has like kind of a gimmick when it shoots or something. But that's it. Everything else was covered in the core rulebook. And because of that, I actually think it was a much more approachable game in that once you learned an army, you knew the entire game. Like if you showed up All to right. a tournament and you're a, you're a Lizardman player, you don't need to know everybody else's book because you have a general idea how everyone's going to work. Age of Sigmar or 40K? No, 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 no. Like, if you're playing 40K or Age of Sigmar, at least in my opinion, um, you show up to the table. Like I, like, I play Tyranids for 40K. If I show up to the table and my opponent's like, yeah, I play Death Guard, I don't have a fucking clue what a single thing on the table <laughs> does. You know, he's sitting there like, oh, yeah, I've got this stupid fat drone thing that auto hits everything it shoots and it's got these stupid rules and i'm just like what the fuck like <laughs> the only rule you need to know for death guard is disgusting resilience and that you will hate it forever but i think his dumb. point i think his point stands i mean don't get me wrong I, I i'm loving 40k in general but i do understand what he's saying and i think it's a good selling point for yeah and for i don't think fantasy. i don't like and just to be clear i don't think it's bad you know i don't i don't think that it's a different it's different yeah. 
it's just different. Um, and, and that's kind of the big thing is I want to like bang the drums on, so to speak, is that one thing I really hate, like this gets my jimmies rustled, is that I hate when somebody starts talking about why fantasy went away because always you get some group of dickheads that come out who didn't even play it a lot of the time. And they're like, oh, fantasy went away because it didn't sell well because it was a bad game or it was too complicated or whatever. And that's just not the case. Fantasy went away because Games Workshop didn't support it. Well, and- we can we can talk about that next time we have you on because I'm very Oh, yeah. I, I actually there. just looked at the time. I didn't realize how long I've been talking. <laughs> it's all good. Uh, Ulrich, do you have any final questions? No, I think we're just going to roll on into the guest plug and outro. Well, then at this point, we give you the, uh, the, the soapbox that you stand on that where you can plug anything you want to plug. Uh, I think the only thing I'll plug is that if, if listening to me sounds interesting and you're like, ah, oh, I want to hear about that one thing he was about to say, uh, feel free to come by my YouTube channel, or Master of Sotech, um, or my Twitch channel, which is the same thing. Uh, I And we also have a Discord community. I am more than happy whenever I am streaming or if you just want to message me on Discord, I am more than happy to just answer questions on the fly as I'm going. Um, granted, you're competing with a couple hundred other people, uh, but like, you know, I'll try and get around to it. And uh, we have a super helpful community. So if you want to learn about some of these things that we just don't have the time to get into, uh, you can hit me up there and I'd be happy to go into it. All right, and obviously you'll bring this kind of energy. I, I've made this comment before a lot of times. I One of the reasons why we do this podcast to begin with is I like talking to people about things they're passionate about because the energy is infectious, and you have provided that tonight. Thank you very much, Sotek. <laughs> oh, you're welcome. I, I am. It, it always it, – it, it is my favorite thing to do. I wish I got to do it more often. <laughs> All right. Well, we really are happy you came on. Hope uh, Hopefully people are – continue to be interested and we'll have a you know bring you on for season two assuming you're interested so of course all right well uh anyway Ulrich, that that goes to you then yeah we'd like to first thank you all for listening because it's really kind of cool that people actually want to hear us ramble on about obscure semi-obscure british war games for <laughs> over an hour and just to remind you like always this is a test run podcast and we do keep saying season two because we want to do season two we probably are going to do season two but it's still a lot of it is going to come down to the numbers and the way we get numbers is by you liking sharing leaving us comments and feedback because again if you want season two let us know and let us know what you want us to talk about in season two as we kind of you know get more and more to we're doing a season two of this what should we talk about and chances are very likely that you're listening to us on SoundCloud, Stitcher, Google Play, Pocket Cast, Spotify, or iHeartRadio. If it's something I didn't just list, then we're not aware of it, and someone else is hosting us, which has actually happened like two or three times. But point is, if there's some other uh, platform you would rather us be on in an official capacity, tell us about it so we can look into it. As always, this has been Lord Commander Ulrich. And his shield brother, Axel Wright. Until next time, may the dice roll in your favor.